Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Kazingram Dialogue. I'm your host, I.J. McCann. My guest today is Amos Dober. Amos is a good friend of mine. He's a theologian. Uh, today we talked about evangelical churches, the state of evangelicals um, with their beliefs uh, in theistic personalism and how that's different from classical theism. We also discussed liberalism, uh, the liberal societies that we live in, what it means to be free, um, the, the downside of a liberal society. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Also, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Please welcome my friend, Amos Dober. Amos, we're recording. We're Welcome back. to Kazim Graham Dialogue. Welcome. My name is Amos Tober. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the guest. And? Good to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here. So, we were just listening to the Kanye West. Uh, what was that song called now? That we were just listening to. It's the uh, Use This Gospel. Oh, yeah, Use This Gospel. Use This Gospel. You know, um, what do you think of the album? Um, it's an abs- yeah, gem after gem. It's pretty good. I must say, I was impressed. Do you did you hear it? Um, did you buy it? No, <laughs> I just listen to it on YouTube. I don't buy music. Yeah, YouTube. It's it's kind of funny because YouTube has all the free, like all the artists will put up their music for free. Yeah, they've started to now, because they realize like you know people just aren't buying as much music. Yeah. It's either pirated or streamed, so Spotify. And and if the if you don't put it up on YouTube, then somebody somewhere is just gonna put it up on YouTube for you. Yeah. Right. And you can either just try to police it, and that's what a lot of like record companies do. Yeah. But like I think artists have been finding it like better to just put it up because then they get more people who actually buy it, who actually know it, and so the you know there's a lot more hype, and plus they they make money off of the ads. Oh yeah, that's so true, right? Yeah. Once it's up, then because if you if you if you're the one who puts it up, and then say like let's just say, Kanye West put up his whole album. Yeah. People are gonna listen to it as opposed to like, music is put on by, Hobo Mobo Dobo put it on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um. So what do you think of the of Christians, doubting, you know the the legitimacy of Kanye West's con- conversion to Christianity. Yeah, I don't know. I tell them to back off. Like, you know, if the reviews of the album, like, so Pitchfork just said, like, the album is completely vacuous. Like, you Who's know, Pitchfork? Pitchfork is like one of the biggest music review blogs on the internet. And it's like a big, you know, it's a big deal in the world of music reviews. And they, yeah, they just gave very poor reviews of the album, said, you know, it has some good beats, but the lyrical content is just like, yeah just terrible so you know he seems to have put a lot on the line in putting out the album so i you know i wouldn't think that oh this is just inauthentic um yeah i mean yeah i I don't think it's inauthentic but what about the fact that you know it's people find that when celebrities come out and say oh look i'm religious or i'm a christian well in kanye west 
um, specifically he came out as Christian and the Christians are like, well, no, you, you're not really a Christian because uh, you, you know, you released that song two years ago called, uh, I forgot what the song is called, but it's like. Uh, with, um, who's with, the guy who did. Um, where they're dressed up in this big. Gucci box, gang. Yeah. Uh, big, uh, big uh, uh, cardboard yeah, box. And he did the Pornhub rewards. Yeah. 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 So people are like, oh, you can't be a Christian. But it's like, well. People have turnarounds a lot. Yeah. Paul. Saul, I should say. Augustine. Augustine, right? Augustine. Yeah. So how influential do you think he'll be? Yeah, I don't know. Um, like, yeah, the album itself, like, to to be fair, like, you know, it's not, like, I, I think it's good music, you know, it, yeah, I think I think it'll be a game changer. Like a lot of people, like I think like here on maybe in the mainstream because the ma- mainstream music has like been all about just like sex and drugs mm. um, and partying for a long time, and it seems like people are wanting something a bit more substantial. Mm. Mm. So uh, hope hopefully this will be, you know, this this will start a trend. We'll have to see. Uh, he's he's releasing an album on Christmas Day as well. What? Yeah, so he, he said, I gave up on secular music and I've got an, an album coming. I, I forget what the album is called. It might be something like Jesus Comes or something like that. And so I, I don't know if it's like a Christmas-themed album, but yeah, he's got some more gospel tracks coming out. How soon. interesting. Yeah. And he has this thing, what, Sunday service or something? Yeah. What is that all about? Um, so basically, um, so like his mom was a big influence in his life. And I think after his mom died, he sort of had... I don't know if it's after his mom died, he sort of went off the deep end, or if after she died, he sort of got more interested in Christianity. But I think she was always sort of a spiritual voice in his life. And he just, anyway, he, he somehow became more interested in Christianity, and especially gospel music, the gospel music that he was brought up in, mm, in like mm. the African-American church. And so he started hosting um, just music gatherings of, of gospel music. And at first it was just on his ranch. And then he started going around to different churches and you know it's always music centered music centered right but lately it's actually just become like a sunday service he'll have just like you know awesome gospel music he's sampling all sorts of old gospel songs you know sometimes he'll integrate some like some rapping hmm. but um you know some he's been having like people preach sermons lately really yeah interesting what and do you- he's, he's been going around to like instead of just hosting it in a, you know a field on his ranch yeah. he's hosting it like in churches in atlanta and different places okay yeah now it's interesting because you would go to a liturgical church right and you are more Mm. liturgically oriented yeah you like order in the service you don't like this like weirdly oh the lord speaks to me right now he's giving me a word for someone in this room they're having some problems (laughs) in their life and um the lord says have hope it's like okay <laughs> right yeah 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 so what do you think of what what, what do you think of the uh, Kanye West's Sunday service um being so musically oriented yeah in some ways like yeah there's, there's, there's definitely a richness there there's definitely a truth like you know tradition can become stifling and just become like empty meaningless actions that we do and you know, I, I think that that doesn't give us a reason to reject tradition. It just gives us a reason to dive into it and 
you know, actually find out what the meaning is mm. and so appropriate the meaning into our own lives. But, um, yeah, I think he, you know, it's, it's not completely without order. He's drawing on a tradition of African-American spirituality that sort of grew out of, you know, wor worship services that were led when slaves weren't able to attain, mm. uh, to attend the same churches as their masters. Mm. And so, you know, they, they started having like gospel songs, uh, you know, in the fields, etc. So, like, there, yeah, like it, it is its own sort of liturgical thing, mm. even though that we might not see it that way, because we're you know we're not used to that. Mm. So, if it, if it became a more ordered service, you know, but it was gospel music, but more order, more orderly. Yeah, um, it, it it wouldn't be so different, at least in terms of like uh, the way things are structured. The only maybe a big difference would just be the kind of music you sing. What do you mean? So, so like, if let's just say, let's have a thought experiment, right? Okay. Kanye West continues on his journey to Christianity. He starts writing these, you know, incredible letters to all these like churches that are dying. Hashtag Paul. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right? Okay. Okay. And his Sunday service starts to gain momentum. Mm -hmm. And more and more churches that are that that are outside of um, you know, African American churches start to realize, okay, there's something deep happening in the way in which the service is oriented. Yeah. And then they say, Okay, let's you know, let's let's uh add this into our structure of, of okay. things so like i yeah like as sunday service has developed though i don't think it's that different in its in its ordering from your typical evangelical service like you know they'll start off with songs they'll have prayers in between the songs they'll have a sermon and then more music hmm. and that's pretty much like the order of, of worship of most evangelical churches and and when i say prayer between the songs i just mean like free prayer hmm. you know however people feel led okay. to pray so yeah do you think that's a problem, though? That you know, it's within evangelical churches that there's a strong rejection of tradition in some way, where they like they'll say, "Oh, you know, we can't have liturgical uh, prayers, or we can't structure it in a certain way because, like you said, it's stifling. People don't feel free. Yeah, the sense of freedom is taken away. Well, I mean, it, yeah. Paradoxically, I think. It, you know, rejection of tradition is very limiting, actually. Why? So, um, to, like, if, if I were to give a parallel example, I'd maybe go to, I'd look to, to language. So with language, you have, um, you know, a bunch of conventions, words have established meanings. Yeah. Um, and if you suddenly don't teach language in the same depth that you've taught it, um, you're not as free to communicate things as when, you know, as when it's taught very systematically. So, uh, say for example, with, with the decline of the liberal arts, poetry is becoming something very rare. A uh, few people write journals and they're not exploring, um, I guess the humanities. Hmm. And so there becomes like a lack of freedom. You feel certain ways, you know, some sort of anxiety, hmm. but you don't know how to express yourself hmm. or communicate. So it can become limiting in that way. Hmm. And I, you know, parallel example would be with, with you know I mean I mean that's just something to do with words but if you think more specifically about poetry 
and uh, or, or painting. Yeah. So the in the Western tradition, anyways, there's established conventions like, um, yeah, I don't know, fox representing slyness, other things like that. Mm-hmm. And once, if there's if there's a break in the tradition where there's no longer that metaphorical association that's established in our in our social consciousness, it it becomes hard to communicate those those things in complex pieces of art. Hmm. So it it becomes shallow. What you express becomes very shallow. Yeah, yeah, and you know I don't. Yeah, drink to, it too. Drink it. Take yeah, a sip. I, I don't want to bash evangelicals too much. Um, like I think it's it's good to recover, you know, authenticity to some degree. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, there there's definitely some limitations in failing to interact with tradition, at least. Yeah, so, I th- I think that's the thing though. It's it's the lack of failing to interact with yeah the the tradition, the Christian tradition. The Christian it's so it's so big. You know, yeah. it's like two thousand years of Christian history that you rejected. You start you you ignore you know, and you only take let's say the past two hundred years or something. Yeah. Yeah, but. You know, at the same time, like the Christian tradition is meant to be a living tradition. It yeah. develops, old concepts are applied in new contexts, and that sort of opens up the depth of those concepts. So, you know, it, it doesn't, you don't want something stale and stagnating, mm. but you don't just want to completely move away with, away from it. And uh, last time I was on the podcast, we had a, a little talk about um, different definitions of freedom yeah. in contemporary culture versus, you know, Platonic, Aristotelian, Christian traditions yeah. of of reflection on freedom. Mm-hmm. So instead of seeing freedom as the ability to act without restraint, freedom involved um, like wise restraints that enable us to achieve the things which help us flourish as humans. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, possibly when we're thinking about language, artistic expression, yeah, uh, there needs to be those same sort of wise mm-hmm. restraints that enable us to be to be free to express ourselves. Right. So, <clears throat> yeah. So do you think, say, say you start off with those restraints because um, uh, the old Renaissance art artists, they all had to be able to perfect or paint exactly the way that their master painted. So they would have to like copy a particular master's art and replicate it such that you couldn't all, you couldn't distinguish it. And then they said, okay, now you are you are your own artist. So you can do whatever you want. Yeah. So with um, so a more contemporary artist that I'm thinking of is Picasso. Picasso used to paint, very, I would say, I don't want to say very realistic, but he used to paint art that was more realistic. Yeah. And as he progressed, he broke the boundaries of those. He broke the rules of art. Yeah. At least his own art. And then by the end of his life, he was just like, "That's just look." <laughs> yeah you know i'm a big fan of picasso but yeah yeah no me too i've also heard of picasso though that his his sight got progressively worse as he so that's his life went on and i've just heard all sorts of jokes about that's why his that's later why all art his, is so strange that's why all his women have crooked noses <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and so that's what i wonder i wonder if people are finding that i wonder if people find in north america the traditional churches like Catholicism, uh, Anglicanism, uh, any of the Orthodox churches, 
you know, mm-hmm. any of those churches, if they find the tradition in which those things, uh, those churches exist, too stifling, because they're like, well, we haven't really progressed in our in our way of worship. Whereas, you know, in the evangelical church, you're more free. You know, you're like, ooh, the Lord has spoken to me. The spirit will, you know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you can tell, oh, wow. you can tell. Uh, uh, yeah, a bit of a caricature, but sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I, I don't know about this, and I'd be curious to look at some some demographic data, but um, like there, there is a huge emphasis in our culture for sort of, you know, like expre- expression of our desires, expressivism, um and you know the idea that freedom is the ability to act without restraint and i th- i think maybe um people who who spend time like interacting with the history of ideas the history of art history of music uh can sometimes find the the evangelical well the the um expressivist modern idea of freedom to be limiting in that way mm-hmm. And you know it is to to a certain capacity, but yeah. I, again, I think uh, moderation and temperance really comes in here. Yeah. And so you so in terms of church, moderation and temperate uh, moderation meaning have some liturgy, have some sort of has some form of um, um, traditional worship, and then add in yeah some newer things. Yeah. yeah. So say like with, with Catholics who want to have the the mass in Latin. Yeah. It's you know, it's nice, it's beautiful. I've been a few times. Yeah. The the Gregorian chant, uh, or the polyphony is just incredible. Mm-hmm. It's very beautiful. Uh there's there's a rich a rich symbolism to it. But like majority of people don't understand Latin today. Yeah. It's it's just you know, it's a liturgy for for an educated few, mm-hmm. and I don't I don't think that's appropriate. So being able to integrate the um, the reverence and the deep symbolism and you know beautiful music that's at least trying to interact with the history of music, I think. Yeah, that that seems to be more of a, a sane approach. Uh, <clears throat> it's it's definitely more relevant. So I suppose you need a balance between relevance and depth, mm-hmm. and. And often you just have either depth with no relevance or relevance with no depth. Yeah. Right? Like the relevant magazine. <laughs> I don't read it, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think that's that's the one thing where uh, one of the, um, what's the word? What, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. The uh, disillusionment within evangelicalism is, you know, most not most i mean every single evangelical is protestant and they're yeah the church for most evangelicals started with martin luther <laughs> yeah uh i, I mean uh, and so what happens is well you, yeah again that's that's just contemporary evangelicals yes, because yeah. if you look at like the founders well when yeah, did evangelicalism fact, start like in the early 19th century uh no in the early 18th century 18th century okay yeah and if you if you look at the original evangelicals like john wesley um, well, especially Wesley, um, he he sort of circulated a library of extracts from from earlier Christian works, and so he's huge on reading, mm. like Desert Monastics, uh, Augustine, Vagrius, and other other like 
great thinkers of the Christian tradition. He mm -hmm. wanted to distribute that knowledge to the laity. But the see, evangelicalism is a strange phenomenon, and I think uh, you need to understand the emergence of um, like modern voluntarist social arrangements to understand the emergence of evangelicalism. So I, I've had a, a couple of professors, I, I studied theology, mm -hmm. and some of my professors were experts on the history of evangelicalism, yeah. especially the history of early evangelicalism. And um, it seems that, um, <clears throat> so after, like in, in the medieval period, there's a huge emphasis on tradition. Like you, you do the trade that your, your parents did, unless you're an elite. And okay. if you're an elite, say you're a merchant or something, uh, you would often send some of your sons off to get educated. So, um, you know, one of your son could become a priest to pray for the family, to, you know, look after the spiritual needs of the family, pray for their souls. Uh, you, another son could become a lawyer mm -hmm. to look after the, the legal needs, not just of the family, but of the community in general. Because, you know, the, fam the family existed to serve the common good, mm -hmm. or at least that's the idea of the family in the medieval period. Uh, after the Reformation, there was much more emphasis on, like, ethics tended to value authenticity. Well, not authenticity. That'd be to to read existentialism back into the 16th century, but at least uh, heartfelt sincerity. So, okay. like with with Martin Luther, um, justification involved um, like an experience of trusting yourself to Jesus. Okay. Or faith, faith is already involved an experience of trusting yourself mm -hmm. to Jesus. And you need to do that authentically and to actually mean it with your whole being. Right. It's like stake, staking your life on it. Okay. And so that sort of became the standard of ethics rather than um, thinking of the common good and your role in that and working towards that mm -hmm. as a goal. Um, so it became much more ethics sort of retreated into the interior life rather than mm. the exterior life in okay. some ways. And I guess with the, the wars of religion, just completely like decimated European society. Uh -huh. So once Protestants and Catholics really doubled down on their, their religious systems and accepted that it was the state's role to impose a religion. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I guess people sort of were quite disillusioned by that, by all the death, and they sought new ideals. And so they, they looked to that ethic of sincerity and thought, um, you know, we need to reorganize society in such a way that voluntary consent um, plays a huge role. So like my, my church membership should be like voluntary consent. Mm -hmm. And um, baptism. Yeah, baptism. And yeah, so with, with evangelicalism, and you also see the emergence of like the, the breaking down of the feudal system and the emergence of market capitalism at this time. Mm -hmm. So rather than being established in a certain place and you know, you always trade with the same people, there's always the same sort of social structures, mm -hmm. uh, society gets more like f freed up. There's more social mobility. Yeah. Now that that's obviously a good thing, but it definitely affects the way that we perceive ourselves in the world. Mm -hmm. And so with, with evangelicalism, uh, you need to have a sincere, heartfelt experience yeah. in which you assented to belong to the church. Okay. And so that's sort of the emergence of, of conversion experiences. Um, and, you know, there's, there's more to it than that. There's, there's also a deep tradition of 
monastic conversions of the heart. So people wanting to pursue the monastic life, mm-hmm. wanting to, to know God, and then moving from the state of being enslaved to their sin to actually communing with God. Mm-hmm. So like in the East, uh, mystics talked about the gift of tears, and it's when you finally feel heartbroken about your sin, yeah. and you actually give yourself over, over to, to God to, okay. to live. And yeah. So, you know, it, it's not purely uh, evangelicalism. It's just the religion of market capitalism. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, you can't separate it from that. Hmm. Um, how did we get onto this topic? Well, it's just that, it's just that with evangelicals, you have this uh, lack of tradition, uh, a rejection of that. You know, it's, it's, right. very, it's become... Yeah, so you're, you're not born a Christian. You're not born a Christian. Like with Wesley... You know, you're you're born a Christian, you're baptized a Christian, but you sin it all away, and so you need to return to Christianity by heartfelt consent. Mm-hmm. Um, but then eventually, that sort of developed into nobody's born a Christian. The standard disposition is that, um, <clears throat> you know, everyone's born to turn away from God, mm-hmm. and you you need that conversion in order to become a Christian. It's like, you know. I always think of John the Baptist, who was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. Right, those sort of things become oddities. That, that it is, it people becomes, aren't raised yeah, Christian. In, that, that's in a very good point. Period. What 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 would what would um, people do with that? Because because uh, with John the Baptist, uh, what's his mother's name? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Right. Uh, Mary goes. Mary's pregnant. Mary's three months pregnant or six months pregnant, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Goes to see her cousin, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist. At least it was recorded that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and jumps, leaps in the Leap, room, right? And so then, okay, it's very strange for us now to look like. Well, I mean, if you're an evangelical, yeah, uh, you're like, okay, well, what do what do we do with this? Yeah, well, I think you tend to think of it as like being something chosen. very, yeah, it's very exceptional, and I I think that most previous interpreters would just think. You know, he's a very pious man from his birth. And it's not just, you know, this completely exceptional, miraculous, you know. Evangelicals tend to shy away from the idea of, like, the Immaculate Conception. But then with John the Baptist, mm. they almost functionally believe that about him. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, why, why is that? Why is that uh, evangelicals reject Immaculate Conception? Even, um, because I th- if I'm not mistaken, historic Christianity has affirmed Immaculate Conception for the most part, um, right? The early fathers did. They, yeah, no, they. I don't think they would explicitly say Immaculate Conception because that that really only Came comes about. into play like later in the medieval okay. period. You know, they would look at um, say some of the biblical language with, um, I don't know, Mary's always compared to like the Ark of the Covenant, mm-hmm. so she's she's always you know, portrayed as being very, very holy. Yeah. And I guess like with uh, a certain like legal interpretation of Augustine, she needed to be, you know, preserved from original sin in order for Christ to be, to be born. Right. Or to be carried. To in, be carried. In yeah. a holy, yeah. Um, yeah, I think maybe part of, and like, yeah, so it, it is sort of contextual. So like East Eastern Orthodox reject the idea of immaculate conception as mm. well. But, but I think are. I think with evangelicals, part of the thing is, is reaction against Catholicism. Okay. And maybe part of that is like 
um, you know, the, the wars of religion also made British people and, and German Protestants bitter towards very bitter and paranoid about Catholicism. Mm. And so there's a huge, you know, people are very reactionary and like, you know, the, the Spanish tried to invade Britain to impose Catholic monarchy there. Yeah. And so, you know, people are like, well, these Catholics want to take away our freedom. They want to impose, um, Catholic moral laws. Yeah. And terror against Protestants. Mm, mm. So I, I think, you know, it's, we're not very conscious of our tradition sometimes. And so like people like John Calvin would say very, you know, high and praiseworthy things about Mary, which would be, which we, you know, we wouldn't think being on the, this side of the wars of religion. So we, yeah. Cause, uh, does John Cal- Calvin uphold, uh, Mary's, uh, perpetual, perpetual virginity? virginity? Um, I think he's and John Calvin for anyone who does not know Christian history is the dog of the dogs for Christians, for, for Protestants, my for man, Protestants. for Protestants. Yeah. The he's dog like of the, the dogs. <laughs> the dog of the, that's Martin Luther and then John Calvin. Yeah. Those two homeboys. They're, they're yeah. like the popes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and even that's like anachronistic. They were important, but not as important as modern evangelicals make them out to be. Mm. Um, but yeah, like John, John Calvin would have, I forget what he, he actually says. I think he, he says that this is a reasonable explanation. The text doesn't demand it, but it's permissible. Mm. Okay. Which would be in stark contrast to what most evangelicals would hold to. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is with evangelicals, I mean, with evangelicals that hold, I I say evangelicals and I'm thinking of like the major evangelical um, lines or or thinkers like John Piper. Yeah. uh, uh, Tim Keller. Those are big dogs. uh, Who's another one? At one point it was Francis Chan. Oh, Matt Chandler. who's a pastor, right? Uh, I'm trying to think of some other evangelical academics. Um, I, well, you know, those guys are pastors. I know, that's why like, so like, academics would be... You know, they're, for most evangelical pastors, they're more well-educated than... Like John Piper was an English professor. Right. He's educated. He has a PhD, right, John Piper? Yeah. Tim Keller, I don't know if he has a PhD, but he, he writes very well. Yeah. Um, and, he, he, you know, he knows his stuff quite well. Oh, yeah. He's, I think he was compared to like the C.S. Lewis of our time. Mm-hmm. Someone, New that'd York be a, Times. That'd be a fair comparison. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so when it comes to those guys, you know, you they have very strong influence over uh, evangelical thought. Yeah. Um, and something that I, for a while, struggled with was, you know, I was a pretty hardcore Protestant. I was like, John Calvin, John, <laughs> not John Calvin. Uh, what I would have considered myself as a Calvinist, homegrown, not homegrown, but a Calvinist, you know, like Calvinists generally are like five points. I was like, you know, seven point Calvinist. That's how Calvinistic <laughs> I was. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think the first problem for me was was when it came to sola scriptura, you know, and that, you know, I, I think Ed Fazer wrote a, a very short not Ed Fazer's blogs are not short, but he wrote a blog on um, sola scripture and how it's uh, self-referentially incoherent if yeah. you really uphold to sola scripture. Because first of all, scriptures were made well put together by the tradition or by council, 
But if you hold to sola scriptura, you you can't really get scripture, the scripture that we have now, without the tra- without tradition. Yeah, sure. And so, the other thing would be with sola scriptura, you have you know, um, I think uh, this one Catholic guy, I think he but, said, like yeah. to to be fair, um, like I I don't even think Catholics, most Catholics today wouldn't see scripture and tradition as like two rival. Uh, sources of authority that you know they're not two separate things that complement each other it's like tradition just is the interpretation of scripture and like the handing on of teachings mm-hmm. directly from jesus and that you know there's not content in one that's not in the other but they you know they come together as one sort of thing but evangelicals generally will reject tradition you know the power of tradition because there's yeah well they're fearful i i think it's more of a reaction to how some Catholics will, and to be fair, there are lots of Catholics who don't know their history either. Sure. So they'll, you know, I've met people who say, "Oh yeah, I," um, to quote, uh, like, um, "I prayed to Mary," or, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I guess that's the word. I, I prayed to Mary, and when you ask them, "Okay, like, are you praying to Mary?" Like. In the same way, the same that, way you that you pray to, to Jesus. And they're yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, well, that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, that's not. But then if what, you ask the what, priest. That's not what, yeah. Or the, say, no, no, like, no, 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 no way. And they're very adamant about it. And, you yeah. know, even the Orthodox. There was an Orthodox priest that I talked. He was a Egyptian Coptic. He was a Coptic Orthodox priest that okay. I, spoke, I was speaking to. Ooh. And I was like, so you guys, this was like a few years ago. I was like, so what, you guys pray to saints? He's like, Yes, we but praying we mean intercessory. We ask for their help. Yeah, and he he's like he was very he wanted to make clear that it, we weren't he wasn't praying, or the uh, Coptic churches don't pray to the saints same way that they would pray to Jesus. Yeah, and but that sort of emphasis is lost on the lay on the on the on the lay people in the church. Sure, right, and so. Going back to Sola Scriptura, what I was saying is, <laughs> what I was saying with Sola Scriptura is, Sola Scriptura as, as a starting as a starting point is seems incoherent. That's all. I, that's that's the point I was getting to. Right. Well, there different things are meant by Sola Scriptura. Lots. So, so for example. Um, <clears throat> Like Sola Scriptura, as in like my own private judgment of the text, is what determines what's true and false. Which is the mo- which is the common view. Yeah, which, of evangelical churches. sure, which is the common view and the common practice is is not that historical, because like <clears throat> I think like more more traditional Protestants, like even you know the initial reformers would think, well, no, it's the you know the, the church's public interpretation of the text is what matters. So you know, it's not. Yeah, it, it's not as as private. It's mm-hmm. not as subjective, I suppose. But we've we, we evangelicals, we've made it very subjective. So subjective to the point where you have some crazy people saying some crazy things. You know, they're interpreting scriptures in ways that only. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I think um. 
yeah there's, there's some pretty bizarre people out there like i think uh yeah i've, I've heard of a group and i'm i won't say what connection i have to them okay <laughs> uh it's, it's an indirect connection though but uh people who their reading of scripture they think that they need to start practicing like old old testament temple practices like keeping the feast days and stuff like that uh-huh. and uh they also think that the bible tells them the earth is flat oh my okay <laughs> right. yeah <laughs> i mean that it just rem- those kinds of christians remind me of uh new age militant uh, atheists who are like well the bible says that you should kill everyone therefore your view on christianity is wrong it's like well, well i mean i'm sorry about my <laughs> that's that that's what the internet trolls sound like in my yeah, head okay when i'm reading it yeah oh you eat shrimp and pork you must not be a christian yeah 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 well, you believe in you, oh, you believe in the Bible, therefore you should be stoning all homosexuals. Or you believe in the Bible, therefore you should not be having any tattoos. Now, in all sincerity, there are Christians who will not get tattoos because of the verse in Leviticus. Yeah, I know. Right? Um, I Yeah, I don't get it. And you wonder, okay, how bad does it have to get before we realize that evangelicalism is off the rockers. <laughs> yeah, well, what evangelicalism is today is pretty different from what evangelical was, evangelicalism was in the past. So, like I... Should you just become some... Should you just find a church that's traditionalist, a traditionalist church? Yeah, I think so. Is that better? Is that a better route? But then you lose all your freedom. You lose the freedom to raise your head and do dancey moves. Not necessarily. <laughs> to move according to the spirit and have a little wave dance as, <laughs> as you're singing Amazing Grace. Right. Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to make it sound like those things don't exist in the you yeah. know, like Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran churches. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's just tough because there are, you know, the, there's just a strong dislike towards traditional churches by North American. I would, I, I would say Western Christians for the most part. Well, I, yeah. Maybe I should just say North Americans, because I don't know anything about. I mean, that, uh, about European Christians. I don't know too much about their culture. Okay. Uh, I'm more familiar with North American English people because of all the English that I went to school with. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but a North American Christian seems there's a there's a very strong emphasis in individual in individualism, right? That's why you, that's why they're all they're, they're will they will always be against infant baptism, almost always. They're like, oh well, your baby can't choose. Yeah, does not free will to do that. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Right, and it's it's almost like denying the role that the parents play in raising a child, mm. and you know that the idea of like the atomic individual mm. somebody who, who exists without social connection or natural obligations natural relations with you know the things and people that surround them and that's the way you, but that's the way the society is oriented right yeah we've made it's, the it's indi- sort of the myth that our society is founded on yeah we've made the individual we've tr- we still to this day try to disconnect the individual from 
the larger community. Yeah. To then, yeah. I think we should get back to the to where we started with Kanye. Kanye. Have to you, Kanye. Yeah. yeah, yeah, have, yeah. Have, have you seen his interview? The uh, one you sent me. Yeah, this is uh, a Kiwi DJ. Yeah, the one you sent me. Yeah. Where he's on his farm. Yeah, he's on his ranch. It's like a ranch where there's like just plain yeah. land. Yeah, I haven't finished it. I, okay. I watched like fifteen, the first fifteen minutes of it. All right, the first like thirty minutes of it is where all the interesting talk happens because then he, you know, he talks about business and like building reputation for himself after that. But what's really interesting yeah. is that in the first twenty, like twenty-five, thirty minutes, he's talking about how <clears throat> the organization of our society affects our consciousness, and so he's talking about like walking. As in, like individual consciousness or like social consciousness. Well, both. So okay. he's talking about how, like, you know, he's walking around in a city and there's always signs telling him to, like, buy stuff, consume. Yeah. And I think he also talks about how, like, sexualization of, like, marketing also sort of drives, you know, like, pornography addiction mm -hmm. and just unhealthy relationships between men and women. Yeah. But then he says, like, you know, our cities are, you know, compacted together. But what I think is that, you know, cities need to have farms that support them. Yeah. And instead of having cities that are built around businesses, we should have cities that are built around churches. Mm. And so it's, it's just interesting, like, uh, like urban geography mm -hmm. affects the way that we perceive ourselves and mm. perceive others around us is mm -hmm. sort of the point he was making. Um, and so when we're, when we're talking about the individual, well, like everything in our society helps reinforce that myth. And, um, when Kanye was doing that interview, I almost expecting, expected him to say, well, don't you know uh, that these things affect our consciousness? As my good friends, Alistair McIntyre and Charles Taylor taught me. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe he's been reading them, you know, you wonder. Yeah, who knows? But, <clears throat> yeah, it's... Yeah, it's a fascinating interview. Everyone it, should watch. No, I... I it's a very good point because you know as a as a nation uh, a nation's uh, not a nation's uh, reputation almost uh is bu is built on how good their gdp gdp is right yeah but but to have a good gdp to have one if you if you're a nation right and you say you're the pm or the president if you want a really good gdp and what do, what what would you do you would want most of your citizens to be working yeah. Right. But citizens are both male and females, right? Yeah. Not buying into that gender theory here. Um, but they're generally, you know, unless you're on the very spectrum of like point zero zero one of human population. Yeah. 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 Um, but for the most part, it's male and female. So going to the individualistic point is as a nation, as one who would be interested in nation building, you would be, if you were the leader of the nation, you'd say, okay, I want a lot of my citizens a lot of the citizens to be working and that includes fathers and mothers mm -hmm. so then what ends up happening is the family gets neglected right for the sake of the reputation of the nation yeah and you get all sorts of other social ills like gdp as a measurement for national success is such a narrow standard of measurement but it's it's, it's so many other things mm. and yeah like doing that makes sort of the the economy so the bottom line of businessmen yeah to, to to be like the thing that the nation exists for and i yeah that obviously when we talked in our last episode yeah about uh, the idea of the common good <clears throat> like it i think it just represents like a complete 
neglect of that. So, um, so Kanye West talking about making churches the center of our cities. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it seems maybe like a bit zealous, a bit like, right. I don't know. A bit radical. Yeah. A bit yeah, radical. Yeah, yeah. But I think the, the point is that, you know, there's, there's a deep symbolism in churches. Yeah. Right? Like the, the idea that God became man is traditionally interpreted as something very humanizing. Like it represents, okay, hum, like humanity has just this profound dignity mm-hmm. and we need to constantly be reminded of that and recognize that all of, uh, another part, key part of the creation narrative is that creation exists for the sake of human flourishing. Uh-huh. Like there, you know, there's a mutuality you know, humanity doesn't exist to exploit the earth for vain ends. Yeah. But like there needs to be like a flourishing of humanity together with the earth. And, but you know, the flourishing of humanity is primary. So it's a, so, so having, having that idea and thinking that like, okay, we need to have families. We need to have good, you know, people need to have uh, like healthy psychological dispositions. Um, you know, they, they should feel satisfied with their lives and should have some degree of joy or eudaimonia yeah. in the Aristotelian sense. Yeah. And I think that's important. That's very, I think that's very important for just human beings in general. You know, it's, I think the more I contemplate on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for a long time I rejected it. I was like, I learned okay. it when I was, I think, uh, 16, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. And I was like, that's, that's just is whatever they just probably made this up in his bedroom I had, you know we, we had to study and but more recently I started contemplating on okay if you want a human being to flourish you do need some very foundational things yeah like water is very important mm-hmm. otherwise you're gonna die I mean all living things need yeah, water water food. food and shelter yeah now you may not necessarily need, you know, you, you don't you don't need a spouse necessarily. You don't need certain things, but as human beings, as social creatures, you do need. I mean, you first of all, you need those things to survive generally. Yeah. But then you need community. Yeah, uh, you need a healthy community life. Right, and that's why you would have so working, you know, sixteen-hour days, sleeping at your work. Yep. Is not is not healthy. It's not and, and like countries like Japan, where people stay there and just work 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 and i think there was was you someone someone told me that some guy was found dead at his office because he never went home yeah and he would just sleep there that one day when someone came in maybe it was in korea (laughs) they thought he was sleeping but he had died right i was like oh man that's crazy and there's there um my um people i know work in china and they were telling me that uh, when they find out that in the West, you go to school, in universities, you go to school, you go to university classes, mm-hmm. but you have like two classes that maybe three hours long yeah. or like an hour and a half. And then you go back and the rest of the time is free. They're like, what? Yeah. You have well, that much free time? A lot of it's meant for study. And I think North American students tend to neglect that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
the end of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is self-actualization. Well, at least that's how he puts it, right? Okay. Self-actualization, which I mean, I think it's better to say, uh, I think the more accurate term would be like happiness and not in this like trivial, you know, oh, I feel happy today. I don't feel happy tomorrow. But yeah, in the sense of tra- like, transitory or tra- transient passion. Yeah. It's like, there's like a deep um, sort of, Oh, I don't know what the word would be, like satisfaction. I'm, I'm or, fulfilling the deep needs in my life for community, having a, a steady source of food, shelter, and yeah, love and belonging. Mm-hmm. And once you get, I think once human beings are able to attain that state or or achieve that state, you know, the, the sufferings in life will would not affect you. I mean, it would still affect you, but it would not be such a deep problem like you won't be rocked back and forth you know yeah greatly but if you if you're not at that state or if if that's not your goal right if you don't realize that okay as a human being you your your end is to flourish yeah the 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 suffering that happens will tend to lead you away from it and you'll never actually get there right my point being um Mon- so with monasteries, so this, so with the higher uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, monasteries. When you look at monast, when you look at monks, you're like, well, they, their, they, their life, their lives don't look so fun. They're just like go sleep, wake up super early, do work, read, study, go to bed, blah blah. They just repeat this yeah. for years and years and then. But if you think about it, they have first water, food, yeah. shelter. Mm-hmm. They have the society. They have the community of the brothers yeah. and sister monks yeah i'm starting to think that like benedictine monasteries are sort of a, you know an example of like healthy social life and you know there i mean there's some there's definitely a lot of issues associated with that like you know s- sexual abuses in the catholic church mm-hmm. um you, you you know you need families in society and so like you know i, I think monks i think it's fine to think that there's like some people are celibate some people are monks or sorry some people are celibate some people have families yeah. that's fine uh so you know it's it's not like all society is, is going to retreat into the monastery mm-hmm. but having committing yourself to a community for the rest of your life for better or worse yeah like sometimes monks hate each other and they just have to work it out mm-hmm. because they're committed to being in that community mm-hmm. and you know life sounds tough it's tough waking up at four thirty in the morning to pray Right. And to, you know, for an hour and a half yeah pray for an hour and a half uh contemplate the highest good yeah god and then you know go out and work and learn to love what you do like i'm sure you know benedictine monks are attending to their lands or whatever they don't always enjoy every yeah. single task but that they're given yeah there there is flourishing there because like yeah for the reasons you stated well, yeah, I, th- I think it's so important, though. Um, there's, there's, there's a, I think there's just a lack of, yeah? I have a question. Yeah? <clears throat> Where does does education and, and like, knowledge, or, sorry, even better, wi- wisdom, where does that come into play in your Maslow hierarchy of needs? W- where does wisdom and knowledge? Yeah. Like, w- educating oneself. Or just education? Yeah, I mean both. Okay. Just the, the attainment of that end. Right. 
on IJ's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> IJ's not, hierarchy of needs. Not Maslow's. I, maybe I, I, I like you. I, I would say you, 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 you can't. I mean, you can't really attain self-actualization without some form of education. For sure. Right. Yeah, and you can't attain it one hundred percent without wisdom. Having wisdom. Yeah. And wisdom would be the. I think I would probably define wisdom as the ability to, um, once not ability. Wisdom is just the ability to discern the good or bad of something without having necessary without having done the good or bad. So, like a, a something wise would be, hey, if you if you do X, the consequences of this are Y. And I've seen my friend Amos do this, and I've seen that he did X, and then X, Y happened. Uh, a person who's not wise would be like, "Well, I don't know that until it's true. Let me try it out." And then, you, and then you go through, and you're like, "Oh, okay." This is, a wise person would be like, "Okay, I can see the." Um, they right. can think far ahead and and see the con- potential consequences of it. That's a very shallow uh, definition of wisdom, but on a very practical level that's what it would look like but you can't really be you can't attain self-actualization or happiness without that you know like how are you you going to for sure i i I guess when i was thinking of wisdom i was thinking of a very like aristotelian understanding of wisdom like wisdom is is knowledge that you have for its own sake you know knowledge that you order your life towards obtaining Mm -hmm. um and you know it it's it's knowledge of of the first causes of things. So you know, it's somebody who say some somebody who has um, somebody who plays basketball. Yeah. They learn to shoot hoops over and over again. It becomes a sort of like habitual sort of knowledge. Yep. And you know that that can be great, but unless you have like a deep knowledge of what that's for, mm. how it works. Yep. And you know why the principles that enable that to take place obtain mm-hmm. like that you know you, you don't have wisdom yeah so um <clears throat> like the difference between would be like between a a uh, carpenter who has practical knowledge and an, an engineer or architect who has wisdom mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a, it's a deeper and level of yeah it's a deeper level of knowledge but there's like a hierarchy of wisdom as well yeah and it ultimately comes down to like what, you know, why does the universe exist? What is its purpose? Um, how does it exist? Yeah. And just different like ultimate metaphysical questions. Yeah. And, and I think. Yeah. Uh, like I, I was just going to say like traditionally like wisdom has been associated with knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, I think it, the only reason I would be, I would be um, apprehensive to say that that would be wisdom is because there are people who claim to have knowledge of God? Yeah, that are not wise. Sure. So, you know, there's, there's a difference between like claiming to have something and actually having it. Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? right? You, we can't really know. So you would have to be, you would have to base it off on once your own experience of the, the people who claim to have those knowledge. You know, like priests. Obviously, I'm bringing up the Catholic Church. You know, who've abused children and like it doesn't have to be the catholic anyone who's in a uh, some sort of like who claim to have some higher moral ground or right. like higher moral knowledge i should say 
not moral ground, but you know they claim to have a deeper understanding of morality than everyone else, and then they go out and do precisely the immoral thing. Right? Yeah, and in this specific case would be oops. Uh, sure. No, I, I you know I don't doubt that that you know acting in a way that is not in accord in accordance with what you what you judge to be wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know that can that can lead to doubts about a person actually having wisdom, right? But I mean, there's all sorts of other things that could prevent the person from obtaining wisdom. All sorts of different privations that, that would cause them to act in a less than satisfactory way. Yeah. Um, so you know, it doesn't necessarily. So like you, you could have the the opinion, or the the um, like the practical judgment that somebody doesn't have wisdom. Mm-hmm. But you know, I I wouldn't want to make that a certain thing. Right. Like. Oh, a yeah, a Catholic priest did something awful. Therefore, he doesn't know God. Yeah, and you know, he has some serious issues and needs some sort of retributive justice. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I think it's it's just because I think it, it it's tough to claim that having you know, so one can have the knowledge that God exists, right? You could have a philosophical. Um, you can have a logical, philosophical uh, demonstration of the existence of God, and you get to that conclusion and say, "Look, God exists." There's, it's it's a metaphys- metaphysical necessity that there is such a thing that holds all things together, their existence together. You could get, you could attain that, right? But that's, but that, but that's, but you're meaning more. You're meaning something more than that when you know God, right? You're not just, you're saying, look, you need more than belief in God's existence to have knowledge. Not understanding your question. So you, when you're asking about wisdom, right, you say, okay, look, uh, wisdom is knowing the end for which you exist, mm. which would be, uh, let's just say it's to have communion with God. Yeah. Right? But can one, is it sufficient to have just the knowledge of God, that what God exists, to be, to have wisdom? No, I mean, that, that's that's the beginning. Like, I, I guess that would, that would definitely be a first step. And I wouldn't think of wisdom as, um, you know, a practical knowledge of, you know, that God is the ultimate end and how... You wouldn't say that's wisdom? No, wisdom is Mm. the attainment of that end itself. Okay. Yeah, and like wisdom is the attainment of that end itself and also includes like how how to get there. But it's primarily the attainment of that end itself. It's a... So like when when Aristotle defines wisdom at the beginning of metaphysics, Mm -hmm. he he thinks like wisdom is is having knowledge of, of the first cause knowledge of something for it that exists for its own sake um but wisdom also involves so like secondarily knowledge of how to order all other aspects like all other aspects of one's actions yeah so say uh yeah so you, you need to organize all your other knowledge in light of that fact mm-hmm. and organize all of your your practical knowledge how you live out your life in light of that fact sure so so then my so my question is in the in in ordering one's life towards the ultimate end, mm. 
if you if the ultimate end say you're an aristotelian just an aristotelian nothing yeah. else but you're not a uh aristotelian theist in the sense of believing in zeus or whatever okay you're just zeus? oh yeah yeah you're just an aristotelian in the sense that there is a first cause you believe that there's a first cause yeah would you say would you say that the person who's an aristotelian who orders their life in accordance to that has wisdom even though they don't know let's even though they don't know in in according to christianity that they don't know god because t- for christians to know god is to have relation well evangelical christians uh, specifically is to know god is to have a so sort of like a personal relationship with jesus christ right right and like i think that holds true for a lot of christians so they wouldn't use that same language like I don't know, traditional Christians would think that having knowledge of God is, um, you know, they'd say something like being in communion, mm-hmm. uh, participating in God, yeah. seeing God. Um, but what if you're knowing, def- knowing yeah. him as he is, that, that sort of language. Right. So what if your definition of God, if you're a Christian, oh, sorry, Amos, go finish, yeah. finish, finish. No, I, I, I guess I haven't answered your question. So I think like, someone like Thomas Aquinas would yeah. say, and like Augustine as well, would distinguish between like the, like the nat- natural virtue of wisdom, so that, you know that's wisdom insofar as it can be obtained by reason alone, and then like the, the um, the spiritual gift of wisdom that sort of perfects that and and brings the natural gift to new heights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there's a spiritual gift of wisdom that all people are given, all Christians are given, according to someone like Thomas Aquinas, and. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, that would enable them to know that the first cause is, say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So, rather than just, you know, some sort of deity that's that's defined very vaguely. Right. What was the point you were about to make? Oh, I was just going to ask, is it important... Is it important for a human being to flourish? Is it important for a human being that wants to flourish to have... To have, to have a to have knowledge that's beyond knowledge that there's a first cause. Yeah, I I would think so, and so um, I'm I'm very influenced by Thomas Aquinas in my thought. Uh, so when when Thomas and by Augustine as well. Yeah. So say when when Thomas Aquinas talks about uh, knowledge of God and the um, the thought like the knowledge that can be obtained by philosophers, right? So he, he thinks that having having contemplative knowledge of God, so knowing knowing God as the first cause of the universe, mm-hmm. why the universe exists, and, you know, God is the ultimate, God is the source of all the universe's goodness, so he's good himself, of beauty, so he's beautiful himself, and so he's, like, satisfying in himself. So he would think that, like, with, with f- philosophy, right, we can know that, there is such a first cause that mm-hmm. it exists. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, we, we always have to say that if it, if it's actually a, f- a first cause then it transcends our created understanding, I suppose. Okay. And so there'll always be a certain amount of dissatisfaction because we don't, we don't know what the first cause is like in itself. And you would be able to know that. Well, you, yeah. The claim is that is the claim. Yeah, no, the claim is that. Uh, so I, 
I can so say I demonstrate the existence of a first cause in, in some sort of Aristotelian manner. Yeah. I would have to say that, well, you know, I know that this thing exists, but I don't know its essence. I don't know what it is because it, you know, it exists beyond all the things that I experience mm -hmm. and uh, just my, my cognitive abilities because I'm a limited thing yeah. that's being caused by the first cause. Now, and so like there is, you know, there is satisfaction in attaining to the fact that there, there is this, this first cause, Yeah. but there's also like dissatisfaction in the yeah. fact that you are limited as a creature and so you can't know it. And so when it comes to, so, so he, he calls that the agony of the philosophers, the agony of the philosophers. Yeah. So when it comes to evangelicals, you have who evangelicals and almost everyone in the Christian tradition, except for maybe a certain group of people would consider Arius a heretic. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Arius is a heretic. Bro is like trying to screw people around with his uh, philosophy. <laughs> so, but I, I mean, I think you and I would both agree that Arius' understanding of God was deeply profound in that his reason for thinking that, you know, Christ was created at some point, you know, uh, sorry, the second person of the Trinity was created is because God being pure act you know, that, that Jesus couldn't be God like God, the Father himself, right? There was, a, there was something, he found uh, something, uh, what, what, what's the word, inconsistent in thinking, in upholding that both God the Father and God the Son were both the same kind of being. Okay. Right? For Arius. Sure. So, but we think Arius is a heretic. Yeah. You know, that Arius should be kicked out the church, blah, blah, blah. I would argue that most evangelicals have a worse understanding of Arius, um, a worse understanding of God than Arius. Yeah, it's, it's probably the case. Like, so, you, you mean like, there, like there's different levels of your concept of God. You can think that God is some material being in the sky. You can think that he's just, you know, some immaterial thing. You could think he's he is the universe and we are participating in God. <clears throat> Yeah, we're all God, like Hinduistic philosophies that we're all God somehow because we're yeah, pantheistic we're part of the universe and God is the universe. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. No, I think that the evangelical concept of God is, is sometimes poor, and I would point to. I'm trying to think of a good, good figure like Will, William Lane. Craig. William Lane Craig, Alan Planning. Uh, yeah, so they they would think that God is the necessary being that exists in all possible worlds rather than thinking of him as the the cause of the being of all those possible worlds. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he's just a part of a universal scenario rather than, you know, the, the ultimate source of all explanation. And, yeah, I think a lot of evangelicals like those two uh, tend to have like a, maybe a lower idea of God mm -hmm. where they don't, they don't allow God to, to have the sort of metaphysical explanatory role that he does for, Athanasius or other figures in right. in the early church, and for s s some people, it's it's even God is even lower on the totem pole. Uh, not totem, uh, God is even lower on the hierarchy of 
things. So it's not like that God is, you know, the greatest conceivable being in all the possible world. It's God is like, a, God is closer to Zeus, much closer to Zeus. Yeah. You know, and, but these are people that you wouldn't call heretics, right? These are people, and these are people you would probably say, because they would say, oh, no, Jesus Christ died for my sins. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Jesus Christ did all sorts of miracles. Yeah. Appeared to yeah. you know blah whatever you me, can go on. me personally or <laughs> is you a stand-in for the, the typical Protestant Christian? Oh, oh, sorry, it's a stand-in. It's a stand-in. Right. Well, I mean, like the Orthodox had that problem with a guy named John Zizulus as well. Mm-hmm. John Zizulus, yes, yes. So my point being is, someone who has a concept, someone whose concept of God is poor. You know, they think God is, God is, he's, he's like, yeah, some sort of, some sort of being that's developing alongside yes. the universe. Yeah, yeah, And that's so he's just better. like a member of the universe yeah. rather than its ultimate explanation. But then they believe in Christianity. They, 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 they will consider yeah, themselves well, Christians. Then they, they, yeah, well. So is it? So, I, you know, people can definitely use the, the language of Christianity. And this, this is something that I'm trying to wrestle with as well. So. Like you can say you, you use the uh, the language of Christianity. Let's let's say that that's that's the matter of belief, uh-huh. but the form is how you organize it and how the um, the propositions in your system of beliefs entail each other. Okay. So you know, one can be materially Christian and say that they assent to all these different things. Yeah. One can formally not be a Christian mm-hmm. because, like, you know, say I'm I'm Arius. I say that Jesus is God. But by God, I mean some sort of analogical concept where, you know, there's the ultimate deity and then there's a created deity. Right. And so, I, you know, I can use all the biblical language I want in yeah. my sermons and in the liturgy, but like, you know, I'm actually not a Christian. Right. So my question is going to be, which is better which is- to be Arius and have a proper concept of God and for Arius, his concept of God was so proper that he couldn't affirm that Christ was God. Well, it wasn't Jesus. No, I, I don't. I don't think that that's the case. Uh, why not? Um, his problem was that you can't have two gods because he's not two gods. You can't have a god. You can't have Jesus to be the same being, same essence as God the Father, because then you would be. You would have. You would have two gods. Right. Well, that was Arius's problem. Well, his, part of his problem was that he thought that you could have a proper, positive definition of the essence of God, and you know that's to to be like ungenerate, not to be trinitarian, and so like that. You know, the a more high view of God is that you can't really define his essence. Sure, but so, I mean, so Christians like there's, define there's deficiencies in Arius, and I don't think he's maybe a good example. Well, no, he's a good example because he's the first heretic that was condemned. Right, so my point being, is it not? I think Arius is a better Christian than most evangelicals. Is what I'm trying to get at. Yikes! Uh, I mean, like, I don't, I don't think yeah, I'm no, wrong in saying no, that. I, yeah, I, I think there's deficient. Yeah, there's definitely deficiencies in in both. If if you're holding to sort of per, like personalist theism, would sort of be the um, the thing that you're referring to with Alvin Blanaga, William Lane Craig, and others who just make God out to be something less than the ultimate explanation mm-hmm. for the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like bo- both those things are are deficiencies. I don't know if I would say 
you know having one is better than the other yeah well I, I, yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not claiming that one is necessary but i right. do like think both that both, both are is, both are unorthodox like you know i i think your interpretation of arius is mistaken but say it's not you could say that arius is a better theist but you can say he's a better christian yeah right but so i would so my so i think to be to be a good christian you have to be a good theist right yeah it's a necessary condition to being a good christian yeah so if you're a poor theist you're not a good christian sure because the necessary conditions are not met yeah now arius was a good theist but maybe not a good christian yeah whereas most people are poor theists and claim to be good christian well let's just say because you, you right. just can't have it yeah 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 right I, right it would, be, it, it, would, it would be an if then statement it would be a conditional statement right if you're a good theist oh this it doesn't really work this but let's just say it works if you're a good theist you're a good christian right if you're okay. it doesn't really yeah, work because work that way but the point being to be a good christian you have to be a good theist yeah i good sure. christian yeah and it the only reason i bring it up is because it's something that i've struggled with thinking of what is orthodoxy within christianity right right because yeah, there are so many strands there's so many understanding but this the fundamental thing seems to be if you want to be if you want to be a good christian you most certainly have to be a good theist to begin with and good theist is not necessarily like i'm not refer, i'm yeah. more so referring to like a philosophical under a, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. A deep understanding of theism yeah there's, and there's different ways of articulating say something like i don't know the metaphysical distinction between the first cause and the universe you know, you can use different linguistic conventions to portray the same thing. Yeah. I think that's an issue where like a lot of people fail to understand Eastern Orthodoxy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, you know, they, they would explain their doctrine of God using different terms and conventions than, than Westerners would. But anyway, uh, that's, that's sort of an aside. Um, yeah. You, def you definitely need to be a good theist to be a Christian, but you can be a theist and believe in things that excludes the possibility of you being a Christian. Oh, 100%. You could be a good yeah. Jew. You could be a good yeah. Muslim. So, yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. I do struggle to see like people who, who believe like personalist, personalistic theism or sorry, theistic personalism as, as actually being Christian because it seems that some form of like real classical theism is is a necessary condition to being christian mm -hmm. um yeah so like, I, don't, I don't know if that's the point you're yeah. trying to make no I, it's just something that I, I, I just wouldn't want to say arius is a better christian <laughs> because he's not a christian at all and you know so sure, amos claims neither, yeah neither are, neither are some of those guys yeah i i mean that's the thing so when it comes to um so like when it comes to the Christian church now, we're talking like right now in this yeah. time and age, the Christian church is having a lot of trouble. Christian church includes every all the other churches I'm thinking of. Like sure. Catholic, or like everyone else, Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox. They're all included when I say Christian. They're kind of having, I mean, maybe not, I, I don't know so much about the Orthodox church, but within the Catholic church, Pope Francis is causing some some troubles in there you know that he's really stirring the pot by the things he says and the things he doesn't say yeah and right? other people are stirring the pot as well and other people who don't like francis for a good reason i would think 
some of them are good reason uh, are having trouble and then w- within protestantism you have a lot of like progressive christians who i wouldn't even think are christians because their beliefs are so contrary to historic christianity right because right. christian is like you were saying a living tradition yeah. so if your belief is contrary to the christian tradition i don't even know how you could claim to be a christian you know you could claim to be a a breakaway yeah yeah, some, yeah. you know you could say oh yeah i was inspired by christian thought except right. for this one part which is like totally contrary so then you have like very liberal in the yeah yeah very liberal I, churches just coming left right center and i i wonder what it, what that has to like is it because they is it just that the churches have been heavily influenced by culture and cuz people's minds don't change on on doctrinal or moral issues by philosophical reasoning that's what i have found oh people's minds change due to the changing due to the changing culture like okay. once social i guess one social consciousness influences the ones can change one's um articulated consciousness yeah it can change someone's um view on morality and view on god view on whatever right for sure uh yeah but the like changing culture is is also you know it's a product of intellectuals but it's also a product of changing material conditions as well uh as uh as some Marxists would say. As some Marxists would say, are you, are you saying that we should be? No, I'm. I'm just saying, like, um, Saint Kanye West. Yeah. Uh, that. Yeah, the way that we structure our cities, economy, um, advertising plays a huge. Like, I'm. I'm sh- positive that advertising affects our consciousness and our ability to reason in hugely negative ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And social media. Yeah. So I. Social media 100% plays a role in the way we think our ability yeah. to reason well, you know? Yeah. Because you're span, yeah? Yeah, but we, we, we were, you were making a point about orthodoxy and people people's minds are changing because of changing social Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, that's what I was saying. So I wonder with the Christian church as a whole, um, if in the next, you know, 50 years, the Catholic Church is no longer going to be the Catholic Church as we know it, you know, where it's upheld orthodoxy for, I don't know how many years ever, like two thousand something years. Yeah. You know, is it going to be? Is it going to be? Is it going to be? Uh, here's the thing: Is it going to be like the Anglican Church of Canada, where there's well, the ACC, the Anglican Church of Canada, ACOC? And, yeah, and the Anglican Network in Canada, which is a which is a breakaway. Uh, which is a group of people who are forced out. Because they condemned w- the direction in which the Anglican Church of Canada was headed. Yeah. And they said, this is no longer Christian. Yeah. But they kept all the churches, majority of the churches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's quite, yeah, it's quite possible. That what would happen? Would, yeah, I don't know. Like, w- no, like, what? what would the effects be if the Catholic Church came out and then they said, oh, actually, we can have, um, we now accept gay marriage within the Catholic Church. 
Yeah, no, it'd split it in half. And it would probably be a similar situation to what Anglicanism is going through, where, um, you know, the the established Anglican churches in Canada, in the United States, uh, Australia, New Zealand, like just Western, yeah, the Western economic powerhouses yeah. tend to be more progressive. But then everywhere else in like Africa, um, India, India, Indians. Asia, yeah, um, and you know where the rare Anglican church exists in South America tend to be much more, um, yeah, I mean, traditional. They want to, to uphold traditional know, what, moral what Christianity always was. Yeah. And that, that's, that's something that I've thought about. Okay, it's like, if the Catholic church does break apart, I mean, maybe nothing will happen because the majority of Catholics, the majority of people who claim to be Catholic are pretty much progressives. Right, uh, except for the ones who've converted, I, there are tons of people who've converted who are not progressive. But right. I know m- more Catholics who claim to be Catholics are very, very, very progressive. I mean, yeah, they're it, utilitarians. It, it, yeah, that, yeah, sure. That it, I mean, it is kind of anecdotal, but I think it does hold. You know, if if you're only, um, yeah, your only way of saying. Like if your basis for saying someone is a Catholic is that they're baptized, but you know, not confirmed, yeah. not attending mass regularly, yeah. then yeah, you're probably right. But that's the thing. If it so, if the Catholic Church decides to do something, you know, something like that, I, you know, my my initial reaction is, man, it's going to be it's going to cause havoc. Right. It probably will cause havoc within the um, higher structures, like within the bishops and the priests, maybe. Sure. But within the laity, I feel like they'll be like, meh, you know, we've, you know, we don't really care. And yeah, potentially. Which would just... Well, depending on which group of lady you're talking about, like many in the West probably wouldn't care. But in the Eastern, the Africans... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I mean, I certainly hope it doesn't happen, but Pope Francis, that brother is, uh, is not good for the Catholic Church. That much is true. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of reactions. You think that he's you think that he's high when he's giving interviews, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that he's high. I think maybe he has Have flight we... anxiety. Uh, and, you know, anxiety can definitely change the way that you do an interview. Yeah. Um, you know, if I sometimes like I struggle if I take long journeys on on boats. Like I used to live in Newfoundland, and yeah. we take the ferry across to, to Labrador. No, to no, like Nova Scotia. Yeah. The sea would be really rough. And when I had a rough stomach, I need to take gravel. Yeah. Some people get that when they fly. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's possible. And I, I say it, I said it jokingly the other night. I told you, <laughs> but you know, maybe the dad's taking gravel and he's just saying bizarre <laughs> stuff, but mo- like most of the stuff he says. So like Pope Francis has doubled down, like his, his comments about throwaway culture is like a doubling down on the Catholic church's teaching on abortion. Okay. Um, like within Catholicism, there is a you know Catholic Church condemns both capitalism and socialism. Yeah, so which is fascinating. Some of his comments on uh, things taking place in the Church in America uh, is is just a con- Church in America meaning like Church the Catholic Church or just the Church in America. Oh generally? no, like the the Catholic Church in America. Oh, so okay. some some of his condemnation of the things going on in the Catholic Church in America is just a continuation of that tradition, saying. You know, the Catholic Church condemns both both capitalism and socialism. Yeah, and so like he, 
he's not untraditional in every single way conceivable and he's often twisted by western reporters to be that way uh and you know there's some things where there is a, a lack of continuity with francis but it's not in all things because in other things he's strengthened uh like Catholic. certain teachings yeah yeah so like <clears throat> yeah there's reactionaries on both sides there's the sort of like liberal catholic establishment in north america that wants the catholic church to progress in the ways like the, so Anglican the Anglican church. Church is gone. and they tend to read him in a selective way yeah and then the sort of the people who are reacting against the progressives who tend to read francis in the same way yeah but just react against it right and so there's not like a fair middle ground yeah but he has yeah, done some things yeah, there, there are people who would also you know there are some people um who would sort of be all about papal authority yeah. um ultramontanists is what they they call themselves ultramontanist yeah really yeah hmm. okay and so they they would put a huge emphasis on on papal authority they would maybe selectively interpret some of francis's sayings and statements <laughs> as if there's nothing going on at all mm -hmm. but i think like, there's a reasonable middle ground to yeah. say you know there are some sketchy things that he said but there's a, some other good things that he said and yeah. maybe it's not you don't need to have a hermeneutic of suspicion or a hermeneutic of of rupture mm -hmm. when you're looking at francis but you do need to say like okay there you know there's there's a reasonable middle ground with Francis, but I, you know, maybe, maybe we've all misunderstood Francis this whole time. Maybe he's a marketing genius, and I would think that that's more likely. Why? Well, the fact that the Catholic Church had had such trouble with, uh, with their PR, right? For years, it had terrible. Even though the popes that were before Francis were, you know, yeah, I'm just saying this, were smarter than him, you know. They could articulate ideas much better than him, you know. Uh not always. You can look to the Renaissance. Well, I'm saying, like, there's, I'm thinking immediately Benedict, yeah, John Paul, Leo, those guys. Yeah, they very, seem to. Yeah, like you read their letters, you're like, I mean. Anyways, but my they, they were also sometimes poor pastorally, and they didn't handle situations yes. right. So, like, Benedict is like an absolute, terrible. No, he's an absolute genius. No, but the way he handled the sex abuse scandal was not good. But well, that's what I was going to say. The way he handled sex abuse was not very, not good at all. No, it's not wise. Yeah, he's he's book smart, but he's not socialist. So, with Francis, I think he's a marketing genius. No, hear me out. Okay. See, the way you get people's attention, good or bad, is by making ridiculous claims. So if I was like, "Yeah, yo," and I and I just dropped the N word, right? <clears throat> if I just dropped the N word, and this podcast got picked up you know some people are like yeah it's so totally okay for him to say the n-word and some people are like no he can't say the n-word at all you know and then there's a whole conversation arises because of my random statement of the n-word right yeah. and what what does that do it draws attention to me it draws attention to the podcast say that's the one that's something i wanted now that's obviously more controversial with francis he'll say something like um i'm thinking of the capital punishments um, statements, right? Yeah. A lot of people defended Francis saying, well, no, it doesn't really change anything because the Catholic Church is never really, um, it's not a, what, what was the one thing, doctrinal, I forget what it was. It, 
It's not in the catacomb. What was it? Our friend Carlos was telling us this. Because I had brought it up with uh, Carlos because he's a Catholic. Um, everyone knows that because he was on the podcast. So I'm not writing him out on anything. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a Catholic. And I was like, yo, bro, your homeboy Francis is is coming out here saying capital punishment is, oh, capital punishment is um intrinsically evil is what he said. Yeah. Right? Which is in contrast stark contrast to what the catholic church has held they, they, they've said right. it's not intrinsically evil you know but but most of the time it's exercised the, it's, it's poorly bad intent yeah and that i agree with so francis says this people are like whoa what are you talking about yeah you know and then he immediately gets attention from people who have a disposition to not like him because of some of the crazy things he said yeah but then other people who like him will come out come to defend him knowing that these people are coming to attack him. So then what happens to Francis, whether you like it or not, he gets talked about, right? The more he gets talked about. So he knows this. So then Francis will go out. He'll purposely say something that just sounds ridiculous, you know, in an interview. And then what happens? People are like, yo, that doesn't make sense. What are you talking about? What happens? And then that happens. I see. I said happens like five times now. But like he gives an interview he poorly phrases something and as a result of that the interviewer then releases it to the public through some sort of medium uh the readers of that medium or the listeners of that medium pick it up they say whoa what's up with our our pope what's he saying now they come they try to get a reaction people start talking about it what does francis do never responds what does he do instead he sends his interpreter boom joe you you go interpret it the way that I initially meant, which he already knew that what that's what I meant, but I was going to say it in such a way that people would get attention. And then what happens? People who've despised Catholicism for years, you know, after the whole thing happened, after the whole scandal, I mean, even before that, people have been hated Catholics. Right. And even Catholics within Catholicism, like Catholics who have been, uh, what's the word, nominal? Yeah. They're like, man, I love Francis. Like, I know some Catholics who, by any definition of Catholic, being a Catholic, they're not Catholic at all. Okay. What do they say? I love Francis. Man, Francis is such a good guy. Pope Francis, I love Pope. I I love what he's doing to the Catholic Church. You know, people, it's like, and then the media, they love Pope Francis. Look at Pope Francis. He's out here saying we should have stricter gun laws, you know. And he wants to save people, but then you look at his bodyguards, every single one of his bodyguards have guns. And so people are like, well, <laughs> uh, it draws attention. That's all I'm saying. It just draws attention. He's very smart. Maybe he didn't think through that far about the his bodyguards carrying guns, but you know, he, he threw away I, that that extravagant robe that you know that popes always wore. The very extravagant robe. Like the know? papal tear. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. And the throne. And the throne. You yeah. know, th- those are huge statements. But what do you do, Amos? Imagine I became the well, PM of Canada. I'm like, yo, listen, guys. Yeah. I'm all about democracy. I'm going to change the election, the the first, whatever it's called, the the election system. Yeah. That's what Justin Trudeau. Yeah, uh, right. Very yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think that's a pretty cynical interpretation. That's my conspiracy uh, theory. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very cynical. You know, it would make him seem like some sort of Hollywood guy who's marketing himself. Why? Why couldn't he be? Was, remember we talked. I, remember we read that conspiracy theory about how Pope Francis became a pope. Yeah, but I remember that. I think 
You think that's yeah? You think I, that's I don't debunked? That that was never debunked, though, I think was it, it? I think it was debunked. I think a lot of people have shown that that you know that didn't actually happen, and how that probably can't actually happen. Oh yeah, but I, I don't remember the details. Okay, see, I, I remember articles and I forget them. I think that's most most people. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I I wonder if some of the statements he's making, like some of the things too, like throwing away the papal tiara and throwing away the throne. Mm. Like that, that, you know, that is a statement of saying like, well, popes should engage in the Christian practice of asceticism because, you know, popes used to mostly be monks and they weren't always, there wasn't always so much pomp. Like there's always extravagance. Yeah. There's always authority and, you know, there's always some extravagance. Like he always would have like, you know, the the highest robes to symbolize his authority, Mm. but you know, there, there wasn't massive papal palaces in the same way that there was after the Renaissance mm, mm. Uh, in, the, in the earlier church. Yeah, this, is, this is the thing about the Renaissance. I wonder how many popes were just complete dweebs. You know, they're just like sexual animals. That's what I want to know. Like how many of them were just corrupt and they were in, put in place because of power and connection? Yeah, I know. I know there's a book on it. I forget what the book is called. You know, they're just like, you know, they go back to their chambers. They're like six prostitutes in their chambers. Yeah, no, I think I think there's a pope who died in bed with a prostitute. Oh my goodness. And like all sorts of other things. But that's the thing. Yeah. No, I I don't doubt that many of them are corrupt. That's why I, that's why I wonder if really the conspiracy theory about Pope Francis now he came to power is really Okay. was debunked. That's that's the only reason why cuz potentially I, I'm just reacting against, like, the this like a trad movement oh, yeah? that I think is kind of shallow. What's that? Well, it's 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 a movement that's mostly centered around reaction to progressive Catholics, and um, it seems to just be negative in its content. Yeah. And so, you know, so, some people would be <clears throat> critical of, say, like new newer type of feminists are sometimes critical of the of the family is it naomi wolf who just put out that book about how uh family is a type of labor and how women need to be freed from the family in order to in order to attain equality <laughs> uh so like catholic you know catholics see that sort of thing yeah and they react very strongly against it and uh some catholics would say things as wild as like well feminism hurt women yeah. and I should just be submissive and quiet to my husband okay. in, in like a very like radical sense. I'm never going to wear pants again. Is like, like Mennonites. Yeah, it, it's, it's essentially that. But it's like <clears throat> super reactionary. And I, I'm on Twitter. I never post, but I follow a lot of people. And so I see some of the people who post this sort of thing. And I think it's just, you know, it, it's very immature. It's not like a principled reaction. It's okay. not seeking to see wisdom in some of the critiques. It's not... Yeah, and it's not even engaged that deeply philosophically in anything. It's mm. just like, well, we don't like certain issues with modernity, yeah. so we hate modernity as a whole. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that that's why I think Catholic teachings, uh, like a lot of the, um, the, encyclic- the encyclicals that were written by popes, like, uh, oh, what's this? The one that was written uh, during the... Uh, the first wave feminist movement. Uh, I forget who's who's 
John Paul. I think it was John Paul's letter. Was it John Paul? It was. Uh, it's called. It's called something woman. It's basically on women and the role that they, the significant role that they play in society. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting to read because, you know, it's thought out. It's not like this guy just made it up from his, you know, just like made it up out of nowhere, thin air. Like, but it's very well thought out. Yeah. And so with the Catholics that are reacting, <clears throat> and I think generally in people with people, I mean, I think I, I, I am obviously, I, I can't be like that when it comes to certain issues like vegans. <laughs> I get very, I get I get very upset with vegans easily. Yeah. Um but <clears throat> you know, I think it's important to be very moderate in your response. But you don't want to be too mo- you don't want to be too Canadian. No, you don't want to be too Canadian, but you want to be reasonable. Right. Like there there needs to be a temperate response. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be too passive and yep. you don't want to just be aggressive and not even consider the other side at all. Yeah. Yeah. And there was there was something that you mentioned to me when we were talking about Catholics last oh, f- a few nights ago. Um, you had said that the Catholic the Catholics were against American liberalism. Yeah. Right. Um, and and what what I didn't know was that the KKK. Would <laughs> oh yeah yeah, this is like awesome story. I I don't know. Can you post stories to your to your podcast. Yeah, I can link I, it. I, I can link okay, it in the I show notes. I find this article and it's hilarious. It's like the... Um, it's not yeah. awesome because they're, Amos is not a KKK. What no, <laughs> no, 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 no. What, what's, it's, I think it's a funny story. Yeah. Um, I'm not a Catholic either, just so you know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so the... Um, <clears throat> yeah, the KKK doesn't like Catholics because like Catholic Church condemns liberalism and Americanism as heresies. Mm-hmm. And, um, like liberalism is in like the ideology of the American founding. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So the KKA was very resistant to a lot of Catholic immigration. So like when the Irish came to America, they didn't like that when Italians were coming to America, like during, you know, the rise of Mussolini, a lot of families fled. Mm -hmm. They thought that this is awful. And other families coming from Eastern Europe, um, they, they really thought that, um, this was going to destroy America, which was a, a Protestant white nation. Okay. And it was going to corrupt it into a minority impure of blood. By having Italian uh, Catholic monarchy. Okay. By having these people come in. And anyway, so like, there's a big rivalry between the KKK and Catholics. And there's, I think it was in the 1920s at Notre Dame. Uh, the KKK were having a demonstration. Notre Dame, like in Notre the Dame, United States? University of Notre yeah, Dame, yeah. biggest Catholic university in North America. Uh, the KKK were having a rally in South Bend and the Catholic students got really upset by this because they, um, you know, they wanted to try and force Catholics out of the country. And so uh, the leadership put out like a memo to the students saying, don't go into South Bend today, stay on campus, don't leave. South Bend is what? South Bend is where University of Notre Dame is. Oh, I see, okay. Yeah. And so anyway, some of the students went out and they were just like brawling with the KKK in the streets. Oh, really? And they were like, <laughs> and there's like a story of like Catholic students, like Irish Catholic students Fighting. grabbing potatoes and pelting the KKK and like going into buildings and like newspapers that were supportive of the KKK and causing a ruckus. And anyways, the newspaper the next day called them uh, 
I forget it was mackerel snapping hooligans or mackerel snapping anarchists. To who? The Catholics. Because, oh. you know, they eat fish on uh, Friday. So okay. These mackerel snapping anarchists are causing havoc in South Bend when the KKK, the defenders of American liberty, tried to stage, <laughs> stage a rally. Oh, my <laughs> and they were just like reading this. And Notre Dame, I think they have, like, it's, it's a badge of pride that, you know, so yeah, our students oppose the KKK. And the, the principal of the school had to try and hold them back from causing civil disturbance because they were so mad at these guys. It's, <clears throat> I, I, I am curious about how, um, what the position the Catholic Church would take, like G.K. Chesterton, when they, when they were critical of capitalism and they were also critical of socialism. Or communist, yeah, yeah, right. yeah what, what, What's a sort of positive take? Yeah, what what would it be? What would it look like? Right. Well, it. Do, I don't think it does much to to positively define it because they they are sort of um, like the the ideal political regime for a certain region or certain people depends on the material conditions that obtain mm-hmm. in that region. So, you know, if a no, if if a city state or say a, a country is landlocked, yeah, it would be a poor decision for them to construct a navy. Mm-hmm. Yes, or you know, if you're on rocky terrain, it would be a poor decision to invest money in farming. Yeah, um, and so like they 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 would look to to virtue ethics. So there's the idea that there are goods that humans need to obtain. And they need to have a certain character to be able to obtain it. And the character is what's important. Um, and that can manifest itself in various ways. So, um, you know, the contemplative philosopher can be virtuous, but so can, you know, the, the social worker who goes out into the streets and is helping people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the Catholic Church, there's, there's philosopher saints, like okay. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. And then there's like, those, those are saints of the speculative life. Yeah, and the saints of the active life, like Mother Teresa, who's going into the poorest neighborhoods and dealing with the untouchables, trying to let people, you know, help help people with illnesses, help people die in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when it comes to to the construction of city states, they would think, okay, so there's the common good, and that's that's part of natural law. Yeah. So the fact that, um humans need certain things to obtain flourishing that's written into natural law and the actual means of obtaining that flourishing mm-hmm. is a product of civil law and okay. so when it comes to something like uh say private property yeah they would say the division of of goods into like goods as in products yep into private property is a product of the civil law and when you know the civil law needs to reflect the natural law and so there can be some uh like material circumstances where we need to change civil law in order to obtain the goods of the natural law. So like at wartime, right? Um, you, you tax citizens or you, you, uh, you seize say all the food and you put strict rations in place mm-hmm. to make sure that everyone's fed. Mm-hmm. You make sure that they obtain those, those necessary, those things which are necessary for their flourishing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, um, it would be like typically it would have been an abuse of British civil law if you know all the eggs in Britain were seized by the government when nothing when nothing was going on. But you know 
that happened during World War II mm-hmm. in order to distribute rations. So that, you know, it, it's sort of intuitive and it makes sense. But so the, the critique of, of capitalism would be that um, capitalism is focused only on the good of individuals rather than... The good of the whole. Rather than the common good. Yeah. And so what, what ends up happening is that wealth gets, gets concentrated in the hands of the few mm-hmm. and it's expected to trickle down and so that you know we use like passive mechanisms uh in order to you know hope that some people will obtain their good instead of rationally ordering our society to secure those goods so, and the critique of socialism would you know maybe be that it um negates human dignity mm-hmm. like ends will be obtained easier if people are responsible for the things which help them attain the end so i will be I will more likely work in a more efficient and honest way as a farmer if I own my property mm. and if I'm able to take the, the fruits of my labor into my barn and feed my family. Right. Then, you know, I'm just thinking of like issues in, in Soviet society with, with the collective farms. People would steal stuff all the time. Yeah. Work wouldn't get done. And especially, you know, when it was done by the, the command of the central government, there's certain, you know, inefficiencies there. Mm-hmm. And, the Catholic critique of socialism is more than just inefficiencies. It also has to do with, um, you know, it, it mostly has to do with sort of the materialist idea, ideas, like organizing society according to like Marx's materialist idea of, of equity, which isn't, um, yeah, which isn't the same thing as the right. common good. So if if. If you hold to yeah, to to be fair, yeah, I think like a lot of Catholics have done a lot to integrate the the wisdom of, say, someone like Adam Smith, mm-hmm. and as well as the wisdom of of Karl Marx into their social theory. Yeah, um, but it it's not something that comes down to either of those two things. Okay, so if you were, uh, if you were, I don't know what this what the position would be called. Is there a name for it? Um, Is it just like Catholic political thought? Yeah, people talk about Catholic social teaching. People okay. talk about distributism. Is sort of what G.K. Chesterton called distributism. His, his theory okay. of things, but distributism usually just refers to like the ideology of like G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc, uh, Dorothy Sayers, she's an Anglican, um, and it, it just had to do with um, you know we should organize society in such a way that people uh, own like private individuals own the means of production mm-hmm. necessary for them to obtain their good. Right. So, you know, means of production shouldn't be owned by the government and it shouldn't be organized or it shouldn't be owned by big businesses, but by individuals. So, but you know, distributism is sort of a, a brand. It's, it's a type of it. It's an attempt to build a system that, that acknowledges the principles of Catholic. Social right. Teaching. So that's, that's what I was going to say. Is it, and you know, it's, it's broader than Catholic social teaching as well. Is it? So, would it be easier? I this is here's my thought. If you know, I wonder if the distributism will become more popular as the internet age continues to grow, and it the internet because the internet age, if you think about it, has done so much good to human beings as a whole. Yeah, right? it's allowed human beings to prosper in places where they couldn't have prospered before. You know, like the internet age, say you make a YouTube video, say you're from like a village in, in India, you mm-hmm. know, like a 
very poor village in India, but you have Wi-Fi, you know, like yeah, you know, every, Wi-Fi is pretty much everywhere now. And you make these videos. You make these videos of you, you know, making toys with with like these very primitive tools that you have. And but then you're able to record it on your phone, whatever, and you put it up, post it on YouTube. And eventually, you get you gain enough followers and views that YouTube starts paying you money for all the ads, right? Right. Next thing you know, so you're getting a million views on your on your channel, and you're getting—I don't know—I I forget what the calculation is, but I think for every one thousand or ten thousand views, you get like a dollar or something for YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I forget what it is. You're able to now have income, a sort of passive income that you would never have possibly been able to have in that village. Yeah, right. And that's what the internet allows you to do. The internet also allows you to build a whole. Uh, system of uh, commerce, right? Yeah. You're able to exchange products for 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 money on the internet. Right? Yeah, you can ship things. You you can even do digital things. You know, you can you can exchange digital services for for money. Mm-hmm. All of which, all of my my point is, the internet has allowed people, human beings, to to excel in certain areas and to um, attain certain goods, um, especially wealth, much easier than before. So yeah. when it comes to this distributive uh, view, or this uh, distributive philosophical thought, I don't know what it would be, whatever it's called. Sure. So Catholic social teaching, let's just go with that. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if it'll become more popular because as the internet grows, people become more and more... Uh, start to find more and more ways to exploit the in the best way, exploit the internet to their advantage. Of like, okay, I own this product, digital product, right. and I offer it to you, you know? And then you start to build a community, a very small community. It becomes like a, it pretty much becomes like a community, but online, a small community online. Yeah. Well, yeah. I just want to say, I, I don't think, the, the internet helps in distributing information, but like there's, you know, you you drown in information, and it tends to be the big the big websites. So Google, Twitter, Facebook tend to control a lot of the thought right. that gets that gets distributed around the world. No, it's true, pun intended. It's true, and but like, I also think like there there's just the there's you know people are coming to an increased awareness of like our our social situation. So like. Marco Rubio started a blog, right? Mm-hmm. And he's been giving talks and he thinks uh, we need a moral form of capitalism uh, that, that puts the dignity of the human being first. Yeah. So having, you know, I think in a blog post he said something like having market freedom does not mean that you're forced away, you're forced to move away from your town, your parents and everything you know just to have a career in, in a big Right, but that's what the city. internet gives you. Right, that's what the, yeah, sure. That's what the internet right? gives you. And it, it, yeah, I think it increases the possibility of, of us obtaining some of these things and, and taking ownership of means of production ourselves. Uh, but yeah, I just also want to say like a lot of, as bad as I think Trump is, I think like he has sort of destroyed the old consensus in American, oh. well, and Western politics totally. Yeah. And like af- after Trump, <clears throat> like con- conservatives, well, people seem to be split into to nationalism and some form of of international socialism. Mm-hmm. 
and sorry uh like national populism it's not national socialism uh it's pretty there's some pretty bad aspects because it puts you know yeah there's, there's a lot of problems i won't get into it but the idea that a lot of people so a lot of conservatives like um oh who's the guy he just he just put out a book about uh hillbilly eulogies what the book is called oh okay and he's just talking about how uh how bad our our modern cult university culture our modern like economic culture is for people who live in small towns in america yeah and there's another guy he's he's a, he's a socialist named chris arnad yeah he put out a book called dignity and he's just talking about how um culture in north america has created like for you know he's an american so he talks about front row America. So people who leave their small towns to go yeah. to big city centers yeah. to get an education, become knowledge workers, yeah. who end up thinking that they're acting for the good uh-huh. by voting Democrat. Yep. But they never, you know, they constantly bash the um, the morals, the practices, and the religion of people who actually live in the American lower class. Mm. And they, they don't do anything to actually help them. And um, he just talks about like increasing economic injustice. Um, in America, yeah, and most people think that the, yeah, the Democratic and the Republican consensus of the past, you know, thirty, forty years just mm-hmm. isn't working anymore. Mm-hmm. And so there is there is more of a focus on we need to put the common good that needs to be the primary thing in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, people think you, you need to do that in different ways. Some ways are good. Some ways are bad. Think a lot of the nationalist Trumpian ways are bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. But, I, th- but at least, you know, some people are are seeking that, like Tucker Tucker Carlson, as much as he's, you know, dehumanizes people who are struggling with the cartel wars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's right to say that, um, you know, the economy exists to serve people. Yeah. And yeah, I think he says a lot of bad stuff, but that was a one good thing. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I, that, so with the whole internet thing, I find um, I find that you can there's you get market free, you get market freedom from the internet. Yeah, there's more market freedom from the internet than without the internet. You know, you'll have things like yeah, it just it just seems to me that you're able to do more with the internet, and as the internet becomes as more and more people have access to the internet. The areas in which, um, I mean, I first of all, I think the wealth gap that has always that's existed since, well, whatever, it's always existed. You always had the aristocrats who were wealthier than the workers. Mm. You've always had the wealth gap. So I, I don't think the internet somehow is magically going to level the wealth gap at all. What I do think is that it will allow people on the lower spectrum of the wealth distribution to rise above and beyond where their current status is right sure doesn't mean the the rich but but the wealthy are just going to get wealthier and wealthier that's it it creates new opportunities for exploitation as well though and so like you know taking a sort of invisible hand that this this is a new free market i don't i don't know how helpful that is um like there there needs to be wise restraints in place that help people actually obtain their good yeah and so you know there, there's maybe there should be limitations on on google and twitter 
and on their their ability to kind of control distribution of things and you know there needs to be I guess I don't believe in the valueless state government needs to promote good morals and they need to know what that is sure yeah and you know there's some people on Twitter that probably shouldn't be there Mm -hmm. and I guess yeah anyway yeah but I just oops I just wonder this this is the one thing so I know know I've brought this up with you before and I'll just bring this uh, thing it's just if you want to implement a new system Mm mm-hmm do you need to go beyond Earth? To Mars. To Mars. <laughs> right? Because it would be much easier <laughs> to implement. Because you know, you'd you say, okay, guys, say I become a multi-trillionaire. And I'm like, look, guys. Put put Alistair McIntyre on Yeah, SpaceX. I'll be like, look, we're going to send 10,000 people to Mars. We've already colonized it. We've already exploited it. We've we've we found ways to create oxygen, um, uh, very efficiently. That doesn't require a lot of things. You can build it. Blah blah. blah. You can live in domes. Blah blah. And be like, okay, guys, you're all gonna go there. You're gonna start a new community. Yeah. You you're you're gonna create your own constitution. You're gonna create your own laws. You guys are gonna have to figure it out. You pretty much be starting a nation from scratch. Yeah. I I just would like to try that. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, I I just want to see it. I just want to see how cuz with capitalism right now it's it seems right. to be the best thing for us here. But I wonder I don't know about that. Well, yeah. Why wouldn't it be? I mean, that's why you and I are here right now talking. You know. Well, yeah, I I think you're mistaken about that because how can you pick that up as being the social factor that allows us to do that? Well, it allows me, allows us to, it allows us to pursue things that we are both interested in, without having a constraint on it. No, no. Oh, does it? Yeah, does it not? You're gonna go do your PhD, Amos. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. If you were in a non-capitalistic um, system. Yeah. Well, there's not very many of those. Well, I know that's what I'm saying. <laughs> But if you were, you know, let's just say a non-capitalistic a non-capitalistic system would be something like the villages, something something similar to like indigenous uh India or I mean yeah, indigenous I, Canadians as I, well. Yeah, I don't live. I don't know if that's a good example. Like if I don't know, if you were in a non-capitalist society like I don't know uh as much as I seem to have been bashing their the Renaissance earlier, if you were in one of the Renaissance republics, mm-hmm. which put the, the common good as, as the primary ordering principle of the society, I don't think you would be, like you wouldn't be, uh, yeah, it wouldn't be that bad. What? It doesn't seem to what be that bad. Be? So, I don't know, if you if you have a, a city-state yeah. that values um, <clears throat> the aspects of human culture that produce truth, that produce beauty, that produce goodness and so they're um you know the government is funding philosophers to pursue truth they're, they're you know helping build beautiful churches they're they're hiring city artists to make it to make the city beautiful um yeah they, ha- they have a very efficient ways of dealing well sometimes brutal because it's still the still the 15th century or, yeah 
sometimes brutal ways of dealing with crime, mm-hmm. but there there was a lot of legal scholarship going on. That that seems to be a lot better than yeah. just organizing society around consumption and naturalizing our pleasures. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. I think so. Like, I I don't see why putting putting people who want to pursue careers in a, in pursuing the truth, some kind of academia, some something yeah. in the university, setting them in a free competition against you know people who who just want to seek ple- well, not people who want to seek pleasure, but people who who market pleasure. Yeah, like that doesn't seem to be good. No, I I think you I think you're right about that. I don't know. I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking now as we're talking. That's why. That's why some of my thoughts are very scattered because I'm just trying to think. Okay, what would happen if you know? What would it yeah. look like? That's all. I, I realize what our our discussion this time started off talking about by uh, talking by the uh, talking about classical theism. Yeah. And now we're talking about critiques of liberalism and capitalism. And it's almost the same conversation last time. <laughs> well, that's the way to go, Amos. Okay. We've almost done it for two hours. Yeah, it's not it's not the exact same conversation because we we talked about different things. Yeah, I know. I think it's good though, Amos. Thanks again for being my guest. So we're gonna cut it off like that. Yeah, it's almost two hours now. Yeah. Well, we gotta eat food as well. Yeah. True. All right, Amos. Next Bye. time, we should what? talk about. Like some art and poetry and that sort of stuff. Yeah, we should. Because you'll have to educate me on that because I don't know too much about it. Okay. All right, Amos, thanks. Yeah. Peace. Bye. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new from it. Please give us a review on iTunes. It helps people discover this episode. Last week, we were rated 53 in the philosophy section on iTunes. And that's all because of you guys listening to it and sharing it and rating it. Uh, so I want to say thank you. And if you are interested in different ways of supporting us, you can check out our swag shop. 